Fire Church. My name is Jack. For those of you who haven't met me yet, I am the youth and discipleship resident here at Center. And I'm so excited to give the word to you this morning. Because uh, it's, it's, it's one that I found very convicting. And I hope you guys find it just as, just as impactful. But as all convicting stories, I must start with one of my own stories. So before I worked here at Center, I was actually uh, a movie theater, cashier, clerk, cleaner, all the nine yards, you know. I did it because I love movies. I'm a huge geek. I'm a giant nerd. If you've seen any movies recently, I've probably seen it. I could hold a conversation with you because I, I love it all. I love movie culture. And I went to work at this theater where I found a bunch of people who also love movies, not to mention the benefits I get, you know, free movies, free popcorn, and all that I've learned as well. By the way, hidden hack, if you put nacho cheese on popcorn, it's kind of good. But that's not for everyone. That's not for everyone. But... Yeah, one of the things that my friends and I did when we were working in the movie theater is that we would like to play a game called Guess That Movie. And it's not what it sounds like. It wasn't just describing a movie and then having you guess it from the other person. But this was back in the day, you know, before COVID, before we had the online checkout for movie tickets, the self-serving kiosk, anything where you actually had to have human interaction and stuff. I know, gross. But you'd have to tell me as the clerk what movie you'd want to see. I'd punch it in my computer, print off your tickets, and hand it to you. So... One of the games that my friends liked to play with me was that we'd see people walking in the door, we'd take turns at the kiosk, and we would guess what movie they were going to see. So if we saw, like, two guys walking in, it's like, oh, yeah, two Mission Impossible. You know, a mom and a couple kids, they're going to go see the Trolls movie, you know? So we, got, we did this, and it was pretty good, and I thought we could actually do it this morning. All right, so picture this. You're, you're a movie theater clerk. You're waiting at the kiosk. You see these guys, these distinguished young lads, all dressed up, suit and tie. They walk into your theater, all of them, one after another, in a perfect line. What movie do you think they're going to go see? Barbie movie. It's a good guess. Any other guesses? Any genres even? Top. That's a good guess. Someone in first service said Wolf of Wall Street. I think a spy movie when I see them, or like the murder mystery kind of movies, you know, like maybe they're going to play long or something in the movie theater. I don't know. But actually, we are way off the mark because these guys, believe it or not, we're going to go see Minions Rise of Gru. You think I'm making this up. If we look at the next slide. This was an actual thing that happened when this movie came out, where it was actually a trend called the Gentleminion, where people would dress up as gentlemen, distinguished young lads, and they would go see this movie in a huge group, all dressed up in suit and ties. It was a totally funny thing, because it's not what you expect, right? Because the game works on us making biases you know, around people or assumptions, saying like, oh, these guys are going to go see an action movie. This person's going to go see this movie. And we think we know people, so we put people in boxes. And then we get cases like this, where you have a bunch of people who just think outside the box. They do something that you didn't expect, because why would they? Who would, who would go see the Minions like that? Granted, it's a good movie. I'll give you that. But, like, not that good. It's just it breaks our mold of what we think of people. And Jesus is trying to break our mold, too. Specifically, he says that to the disciples. The passage we find ourselves in today is Matthew 13, verses 47, uh, sorry, thir- yeah, 47 through 50. If you have a Bible or you have a phone, I'd encourage you to get on a Bible app and open it up. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. You see, this is a parable that's found after what I would say a gauntlet of parables. So Jesus goes out for the day, says to the crowds with his disciples, he says to this huge mass of people, he says the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the wheat and the tares. But then the disciples and him retreat for the day. You know, they go to bed and they're getting dinner, and they're hanging out. And the disciples ask him some questions. They say, what were those parables meaning? So he breaks down some of those parables, but then he gives them three more. 
And this is the last one that we find, the end of it all. And it says this, in Matthew 13, 47 through 50, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. And now you're probably having the same reaction that I'm having. I'm like, whoa, Jesus, this isn't your typical parable. Where's the lost son coming home and we get a party? You know, like, this isn't what we normally get. We don't get this picture of hellfire and brimstone theology coming out here. Why is it coming out now? Well, I would say that Jesus is not just doing this for forming our theology on hell. Yes, he's talking about hell, but I think he's using it more as a warning. If we look at this again, like I said, he's pulled back from the day. He's not saying this to the masses. He's not saying to the ordinary folk that this message specifically. He's saying this to his disciples after they came to him curious, wanting to learn more. And this is some of the hard things he gives them. So in order to understand this warning that Jesus is giving, I think we have to get into the mindset of the person who asked the questions. We have to think like a first century disciple of Jesus. And to do that, let's look to where they were called. If, you want, if you're still in your Bibles, turn to Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. This is when Jesus first called some of his disciples, and it goes as follows. As he, Jesus, was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing the nets, and Jesus called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we see that as Jesus is explaining them this parable, he's giving fishermen a fishing analogy. He's playing to this audience, very much answering their question directly. So, Again, now that we're in a disciple's mindset, let's go a step further and let's get in a fisherman mindset. And let's reread this parable thinking about first century fishing. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. And already, that's a little different than our fishing, right? There's no fishing poles involved. There's no charter fishing. So let's look at what the ancient first century fishermen would have used. Well, they would have used nets. As you see in this picture, their fishing pole was the cast net. It was a net that they throw out after wading into the water. Weights are on the side. It would sink down, and then they would pull it up, creating this basket of fish. It's very good for targeting fish, very tiring, though, and it wouldn't net you that many fish. The next, we'd have the trammel net, where a boat would make a circle, make this wall of uh, net, and then they would eventually pull it all in. We see the disciples actually do this once when Jesus tells them to throw it to the other side, and they catch too many fish for them. But then the one that this parable gets its name from is the dragnet. The dragnet would be where a fixed point on the shore, people would hold this net, wade it to the bottom, and then a ship would go out and make this 180-degree sweep, catching any and everything in its way. Then they would hand off their, the ship's end to people, and you can see how many people it takes to pull this net in. So many fish would get caught this way, and you're just pulling in a mountain pile of fish. That's why we see in the parable it says they collected every kind of fish. But then it comes a sorting process. Now, I want to put in context, too, these are fishermen who are fishing commercially. They want to catch as much as they can so they can sell as much as they can, 
and support their families. Maybe buy new fishing equipment too. So when it comes down to it, you would think that they would keep everything. Maybe not the dead fish, of course, but they would keep as many fish as they could. But these are Jewish fishermen. So according to the law of the Torah, they were told that certain things were clean and unclean. So if it didn't have fins, for example, unclean, can't keep it, got to throw it out, can't even sell it. So according to the, the, this parable, we would see that the disciples would have understood as fishermen this line. They would have summed it up as this. They would have said that their job was to gather. They were supposed to go get the net out, pull the fish in. Strenuous work, but their work. And then God's job was to sort. They couldn't keep what they wanted. They had to keep what God wanted. Now, how does that apply to us today? Sure, we understand it as fishermen, Jewish fishermen in the first century nonetheless, but I don't know how many of us in this room are fishermen. I hate fishing. So how, how do we understand this? Well, I think if we look at it in the Greek, we find something really peculiar. What if I told you that in this entire passage, this parable, the word fish doesn't even appear? Probably like, what are you talking about? We read it. You literally just said it. Well, that's the English version. The Greek itself does not have the word fish. We interpret it to have fish because that's what Jesus is describing is the actions of a fisherman. But it doesn't say fish. Let me point back to Matthew 4. Jesus didn't call them to fish for fish anymore. He said, oh, you're fishing for people. That's what he's describing with this parable. He, he stops talking about fish. We're talking about people here. This actions of a fisherman are the actions of discipleship. It is our job now to gather, and God's job is still to sort. This is the type of thing that got Jesus killed. He was breaking the social structure of the Jewish society. He was no longer saying that discipleship was for the priests and the Levites. You had to go to the temple, do temple worship, tabernacle teachings, and all this. He was now breaking that mold. He was saying that lowly fishermen can now disciple and should disciple. He was now saying that the present, it's not a time for patient waiting anymore. We can't just sit around. Disciples, we have to have this zealous evangelism supporting us. He is breaking the barrier of how ministry has been done, and he's telling it directly to these disciples. He's telling it to us today. So let, let's break it down. We already said our job is to gather. God's is to sort. Let's figure out what gathering looks like. Well, I'm not going to make it complicated because Jesus doesn't either. Gathering is going. That's it. We can end the sermon with that because that's all it is. If we want to complicate it, we can. We'll say, well, it's talking to people. And now the extroverts are like, okay, yeah, I think I can do that, right? We can go out there, people talk and stuff like that, socialize a little bit. But my fellow introverts, I feel you. It sucks. Who wants to do that? Who wants rejection? Who wants to get into social situations that you're not supposed, you know, you're not naturally in? It sucks. It sucks. So we're going to complicate it a little bit more and just define gathering as this. It is deepening the relationships you already have and then developing new ones. Well, again, that doesn't solve our problem, does it, fellow introverts? You know, it's like, how do we, how do we still do this? Well, everyone here, this is, this is my easy first step. Find what you like. I already said I'm a movie geek, you know? I could rant on about movie culture, nerdy stuff, video games, anything. I could talk to you all day about it. But many of you probably are not in that boat, I could assume, by the looks I'm getting. Maybe some of you like to do athletic stuff, go running. I know my friend, he found a Facebook group for pickleball in our hometown. Now he's playing for five years, and he's getting third place at major tournaments. It's like he didn't know he liked this, but he now has found it. He's found an interest, and he's found people to 
you know, develop relationships with. Maybe you're a foodie. Maybe you love just finding new restaurants, these hole-in-the-wall diners. I have one of those in my hometown, and I could talk to you hours about it. They have a cinnamon toast pancake. Oh, it is so good. But that first step is a simple one, just finding what you like. You can find any group again. My friend found a Facebook group for pickleball. That seems pretty obscure. You can find a group of people who like anything you like, even how obscure it is. Maybe it's still your job, though. Maybe you really like your job. And you have coworkers who also like their job. And you could talk about your job all day. Or your families. You have fellow families who like to do summer excursions. And you guys could just both listen and talk about yours to them all day. Simple steps like that is all the gathering is. It's very simple. It's just being with people. And then from there, if we just live a faithful life, that's all it is. That's all it is. You, you tune, tune out now, that's, that's it. But to summarize it, Jesus is calling for indiscriminate, gracious, and generous fishing. In other words, Jesus is asking us to go out there and just be with all people. No borders, no interests, regardless if you believe, uh, agree with them or not. He's asking us to go out there and just be with them. And from there, he's telling us to be gracious, right? He's saying, they're going to fail your expectations. But you know what? You've already failed mine. You've stumbled. You're not perfect. I still love you. Should you not love others the same way? In addition, he's saying we have to be generous. We have to give a little bit extra sometimes. You know, if, we have to, if we're thinking we're giving 90%, maybe he's calling for the full 100. Maybe we do have to take that extra step and initiate sometimes when they pull away. Just like Jesus initiates his love into our lives. He's searching for you endlessly and recklessly. So to summarize, again, complexly, going is just Jesus asking for indiscriminate, gracious, and generous fishing. Seems pretty easy. So where does it get complicated? Where's, Where's the jab of this parable? Well, I think it comes with the sorting. Because as I described with our movie analogy earlier, we think we know people, don't we? We've experienced people for a while now. Even me, who's just 22 years old, I've experienced people, both good and bad. And I think I understand how people work. I think I can put people in boxes and categorize them and make assumptions, whether it's from as mundane of a topic as the movie interest or how they would treat me or respond to questions that I pose to them. So because of my experience, I'm not calling anyone out, but because of my experience, I had a couple questions that I've caught myself asking or a couple of thoughts I've caught myself having. And just don't have to nod, don't have to do anything, look forward, don't look at the person next to you, but you've probably thought these two. What about this one? Uh, we'll start with, oh, that person does all these things that are unholy. They live this lifestyle. It's completely unholy. It doesn't follow God's teachings at all. Why would I waste my time on them who's so blatantly disobeying God? They don't want to be a Christian. They hate this lifestyle. I'm not even going to waste my time. Nope, not for me. Or how about this one? How about that person's already heard the gospel? They know Jesus. They know what he's done for them, quote unquote, right? And it's like, why would I waste my time repeating something they've already heard? It's just pointless. I'd be wasting my time and theirs. I could go talk to other people. It'd be worth more. What about this one? What about... That person used to come to church, yeah, but now they've fallen away from the faith. They would hate to see me there. If I came up to them, they would run the other way. Why would I even take that step then? I'd, I'd do better for Jesus' ministry if I just found someone else. These thoughts are thoughts that I've caught myself having again. And they're thoughts that are the sorting thoughts. Because 
underneath it all, these biases that I'm creating, these assumptions I'm making about people, it's because I think they can't be saved or I think they don't deserve it. It's because I'm taking this process of sorting into my own hands. I'm saying, you're a bad fish, you're a good fish, I'll talk to you, I won't develop my relationship with you, I'm not even going to look at you. And we take the power of saving into our own hands. But Jesus makes it very clear. Your job is not to sort, your job is to gather. It is just to be there. And the disciples even struggle with this. Just a couple chapters ago in Matthew, Matthew 10, we see these little children running to Jesus, all happy, his arms out wide, and in steps the disciples, putting their hand up, stopping the children. You guys can't understand what the Messiah is teaching you. Go away. You guys can't understand these teachings. This is adult-level stuff. Leave. And what does Jesus say? Let the little children come. They were creating this assumption about the kids. They were sorting before they even gathered. And you can see how that interrupts their gathering even because they turn people away. And Jesus rebukes them in that moment. See, this process of gathering and sorting, it happens in tandem. One leads into the other. And then they're both necessary. We look at 1 Corinthians where we see the work of the famous minister Paul. And he's talking about how he spreads the word. He, he announces it. The love of God, the truth of God, the Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And then another person, Apollo, comes in and he teaches more in depth on it. He develops their understanding. But are people saved because of Paul and Apollos? No. They're saved because God brings their, the understanding to fruition, to become genuine spiritual transformation and faith. Paulos and Paul gathered, God sorted, God developed it. They're both necessary. German theologian, this is a fun name, Eberhard Jungel, you'll see his name on the bottom, he says this. He says, without the gathering, without this initiation of us just going out there, the catch is impossible. People aren't going to hear. But without the sorting, without God being with it, it would be meaningless. We would just have small talk. It'd be looking at this majestic mountain and just saying, walking away. You need them both in tandem. So what's, what's a good example of this? I would say the best example we could point to is, believe it or not, Jesus. See, Jesus does a perfect job of both gathering and sorting. Why? Because he's both fully man and fully God. I have this, I compiled a list, I went through scripture a little bit, just found a couple names or groups of people that Jesus has gathered. Just a couple chapters of scripture, you know, didn't even go out of Matthew. Look at what we see. We see children, as I said earlier, sinners, tax collectors, Samaritans, Romans, women, rich, soldiers, beggars, crippled, sick, men, mother-in-laws, Jews, outcasts, curious, proud, possessed, dead, betrayers, doubters, deniers, Pharisees, and many more. Jesus is the epitome of what indiscriminate gathering is. Look at all those people. There's antithesis of each other in there. Total opposites, and yet Jesus went. A specific example that really hit home for me and my understanding of this passage was John 4, the Samaritan woman. Let's just look at how Jesus gathers and sorts in this story. You can turn there and follow along, but I'll, I'll just be doing a summary of it. See, it starts off with Jesus who's going to this well, this social center. And he sees a woman there. And what does he say? Something any of us could have said. Hey, you're drawing water. Can I get a drink? Hey, you're right in front of the bread aisle. Can you toss me a loaf? Can you, can you pass that drink down the, like, the table? It's so simple. It's, it's a basic question. This gathering is not complicated. He's showing us. 
It's just going. He was there. He asked a question, started a conversation. But what gets complicated is when the sorting process happens. And what I mean by that is that we see the conversation with Jesus take a turn. He starts talking not about the well water anymore, but he's talking about living water, whatever that means. And the woman had the same reaction we would to hearing that. She says, what are you talking about? And he starts talking about what true worship is after that. Total curveball, right? And then he starts talking to her about things she's never told anyone. And let's just look at who this woman is for a second. She's a Samaritan. If you're here last week, Brad was talking about the good Samaritan and how the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews, like a bloodbath of a feud. And despite this, this enemy of Jesus then, and the woman who was, in case you didn't know either, women were the lowest social class of the first century, lower than slaves. They were like the absolute epitome of the social class. And then following up, this woman's past was not good. She was an outcast from her own people. So this outcast, lowest social class person who is an enemy of Jesus is the first person to hear from Jesus that he's the Messiah. That just seems crazy to me. That he steps out of his social circle so far and does something so radical. And it all starts with a simple question of, can I get a glass of water? See, the complicated part, the sorting of it all, where he tells her her past, where he tells her that he's the Messiah, tells her that she's free and that she's loved, that happened because he's fully God. And that was a God moment right there, was it not? It's not something that we can just do at the rip. I can't do that. My power is not good enough. I would never be able to think of that kind of stuff. I wouldn't let let alone know her life like that. Only God can know that. So again, we see an example, but how do we do that in our lives when we're just human? We don't have that fully God, fully man component. We just have the human component. Well, let's go back to the phrase. It's our job to gather. God's job is to sort. If we don't have God, then we need to ask him for it. And Jesus is not silly enough to tell us to do all these different things without giving us the means to do so. In John 14, he talks about when he leaves, there's going to be a counselor. A Holy Spirit is going to come and abide within us. And then he's going to do more than just abide with us. God's going to be within us, and he's going to teach us all things. And this is my favorite part, is that he's going to remind us of everything Jesus has said. I don't know about you, but I can't remember names. I can let alone remember flashcards or anything that comes with school. And yet... I get a promise here from God, we all do, that we're going to be equipped in the moment. That even though we're not going to know what to say, even when we ask for that drink from the well, and we don't know where the conversation's going afterwards, if we invite the Holy Spirit into that moment, boom, automatic answer. Because Jesus is going to start talking. He's going to start guiding us to the people that we need to go see, and then equip us in the conversations. All we have to do is set the prep work in our own lives. All we have to do is become temples where the Holy Spirit can abide within. Because then we're going to bring actual spiritual transformation. And I say we as me in the Spirit. I say we as you in the Spirit, not as humans. Because, well, I'll give us credit. You know, humans, we're capable people. I'll say that we can bring, you know, I'd say emotional. Like if someone walked through this door, emotional transformation, it's in the realm of possibility. They may feel very loved by us. But what if, what if our church has some kind of shakeup and center church is no more? Would that person still hold the same faith that they did when they felt loved by us? Or was that all the transformation that they had? I'll, I'll go with another one. I'll do intelli- intellectual change. 
if you make a cold case for Christ to someone, and they're like, yeah, Jesus was real, he did die, and my life has changed because of it. Well, what if someone comes in, because someone's always smarter than you, someone comes in and presents a bigger case for why Christ didn't exist, didn't die? Would their faith still stand, or was that their foundation? Without the Spirit to just radically transform people's lives in a way we can't understand other than our own experience, it's pointless. The Spirit is the only thing, only one who can bring lasting transformation that affects this life and the one to come. And that's not us. Again, our role is to ask for that glass of water in the story. That was all we can do. God is going to take over. We just have to be there. Lean into our interest. Find the people that we can relate to, and even people that we can't, people that the Spirit just points us to. And I'm saying this all, and I'm making a cool case and whatever. You may find this interesting. But I just want you to know that this isn't easy, even for myself. That this sermon comes from my own experience before I'm speaking to any one of you. I have a friend in high school, and he was a smart guy. He actually worked at the theater with me, and super nerdy, loved hanging out with him. We actually worked on the announcements at our school together. And at one point, we were just walking down the hall, and he turns to me, and he asks, Hey, Jack, uh, what's love? I was caught off guard. You know, this isn't our typical, you know, conversations, but I knew he was an intelligent guy, so, you know, I targeted my answer toward him. I said, you know, I think... I think love is this. And he said, well, I think love is like this reactive chemical reaction in our head. I think different stimuli trigger, our head, uh, trigger different responses, and then we just get a serotonin rush or whatever it is, and, you know, we just feel good afterwards. And I said, well, that, I understand where you're coming from. I think love is an act of choosing. You know, I think it's a recurring choice. I mean, just look at marriages, a husband and a wife. If it was just reactive, the relationship wouldn't last. You know, there has to be this ongoing choice. He said, okay, cool, yeah. And that's where the conversation stopped. Now, that might have been enough. Spirit might have worked through that. But I know for a fact I didn't ask the Spirit to come into the conversation. I was caught off guard by that question. We weren't talking about video games anymore. He asked about love. And that sh- if I had the Spirit with me, that might have raised a red flag. If I had the prep work of already asking the Spirit to abide within me, maybe the conversation would have looked different. And you know, I'm not saying this to condemn me or to condemn stories that you may relate. Again, I'm young, I'm 22, not to shame you, you're older. You've probably had experiences of this in your own life. I'm saying this because this was fuel for my fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit that I want to live in, that I want inside me, that I want to just influence every choice I make. Because what if the Spirit was there and it, it told me that he was asking, not out of just genuine curiosity, but out of the lack of love in his own life. What if it pointed out to me that, that he just wanted someone to love him? Maybe then I would have had the Spirit just start talking about things, you know, about how he is loved. And not just by me, but by God. And that Jesus loved him so much that he laid down his life for him. He's a staunch atheist, and I think he is to this day. I haven't seen him. He went to a different college, and you know how that goes. But I'm just thinking, what if? What if I took away my power out of the situation? I didn't just think, but I just let God work. Again, you may have stories like this in your own life. 
And I'm not saying this to condemn you or to feel guilty about it. I'm saying this as a conviction. Don't let my words ring true. Let the Spirit move within you right now. And let your Spirit tell you how maybe it could have gone like this. Maybe next time you have that conversation, it'll go differently. Maybe next time something radical is going to happen. It's scary, I know, because then you think of this burden on yourself. But again, you're not the one acting. God is. You just got to be there. Be a vessel for him. And it all starts with just a prep work. Acknowledging the warning that Jesus is giving here. He's saying, well, there is the great furnace. But there's his presence. And as workers, it's, it's strenuous work. You saw the picture of how many people were pulling in that dragnet. Gathering is not simple. But it's accomplishable. We can go out there and just be present in the community. Present in our families, with our friends. all living a faithful life guided and equipped by the Spirit. Because the Spirit's going to show us who, and He's going to do the work. We just have to respond. So as we're closing today, I just want us to take a posture of humility. A posture where we can just reflect on those stories from our past and just hear what the Spirit's trying to tell us. A posture where we put ourselves and lower our power below God's and acknowledge where he's sending us. And set that groundwork, that firm foundation, that awestruck wonder that we're going to respond to. So let's start that routine now, and let's pray for the Spirit to live within us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you today as broken vessels. Though we may try to piece ourselves together and look presentable for the people outside these walls, or even inside these walls, Lord, break us down now. Humble us so that we may recognize your love and how it plays a role in our own lives. How we need you and how that we can gain that awestruck wonder that you show us time and time again. Lord, amaze us in ways that we didn't know were possible. Holy Spirit, come abide in us today. Transform our lives so that we may be a temple from which you abide in, and from which people will just see us, and not see us or a happy face, but they'll see your face, God. They would see how you moved in our lives and how there's hope for them. Lord, bring transformation for everyone around us and give us the persistence and give us the steadfast faithfulness that we need to keep doing this strenuous work. Lord, we simply just pray for you to guide us. Guide us and then equip us. Make us bold in your name. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for that great word. Uh, let's go ahead and stand.